This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Friday, March the 3rd, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, it's a special edition of the weekly news panel. Bringing back some familiar faces, you know Joita Gupta, and Megan Gilmore is pinch-hitting for Michelle McQuig. Today, three topics on deck. The federal government's decision to ban TikTok from their mobile devices. Controversial meeting between three conservative MPs and a far-right German politician. We'll uh, dive a little bit deeper into some of those implications. And the Rideau Canal Skateway will not be opening this winter. How is climate change impacting winter activities and other fun seasonal activities? All those questions and more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours, but the show begins with the top story of the day. It's a follow-up from yesterday's top story. Testimony continued at a parliamentary committee looking into foreign interference of elections. CSIS Director David Vigneault points to a report that any attempts by foreign countries to interfere in recent federal elections did not pose a genuine threat to election integrity. The panel have come to conclusions in 2019 and also for the elections in 2021 that indeed uh, that uh, the uh, information did not reach that threshold. And um, based on on my information and my experience, for what it's worth, Madam Chair, I would say that I concur with that conclusion. And you know where I go next in the top of the show news report. It is the economy beginning in the world of retail. Nordstrom is closing all of its Canadian stores and cutting 2,500 jobs. The Seattle-based retailer has six Nordstrom and seven Nordstrom rack stores in Canada, which will be shuttered by late June. Its e-commerce business will close operations immediately. Nordstrom chief executive Eric Nordstrom says the company is exiting Canada because it does not see a realistic path to profitability for business in the country. Nordstrom first announced plans to expand to Canada in 2012 and opens its first store in Calgary in September of 2014. And looking ahead to next Wednesday, the Bank of Canada will make another interest rate announcement. RBC Assistant Chief Economist Nathan Jansen says a year of hikes has very much clamped economic growth. You know, interest rates have moved from extremely um, stimulative levels to contractionary levels. So that is, that is a big difference when you think about uh, uh, how central banks will react uh, going forward. Like a year ago at this time, it was be- starting to become pretty clear. Um, that central banks were um, were behind the curve uh, uh, in terms of interest rate hikes. The expectation is for the bank to hold rates steady with the announcement next Wednesday. In a related story, the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board says last month's home sales prices fell 18% from last February. Karen Rebo dives deeper into the numbers. The board says the average selling price for February totaled just under $1.1 million, compared with over $1.3 million a year ago. Treb attributed the swing in pricing to higher borrowing costs, which have pushed some buyers to purchase a lower-priced home. Overall, sales remain far lower than they were a year ago. When the market was soaring, buyers dropped conditions and feisty bidding wars were the norm. February sales totaled 4783 down 47% from a year earlier and new listings were down 41 percent. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press, Toronto. You often hear me talking about the reality of the data that's being shared and certainly some of the home price conversations that were going on a few months ago about the skies falling calamity but then you looked at the overall drops and they were sort of two three percent on prices. When you start looking at 18 percent price drops year over year that's that's substantial. That's significant. Those are conversations that, that are worth talking about. But then when you start diving into some of the more macro data, where you hear, oh, the number of homes sold split in half 
And then you heard that little addendum right at the end of the report that said, oh, well, home home listings were also down 41%, that there were half the homes listed. So market activity remained about stable based on inventory, but but the prices are going down. So that, that you know, th- th- these things you have to do. You have to think about the numbers, keep your third eye open, and consider what all these things mean. Either way, uh, interest rates have certainly played a big part on home sales. That said, $1.1 million. I mean, downright affordable, right? It's 1.1. Easy peasy. Why not just uh, buy two houses with uh, prices so low at $1.1 million for a house in the GTA? Over to the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find the show on Twitter at Accessible Media. Inc. is where you vote on the polls on Facebook. On Thursday, you were asked, would you ever submit your DNA to an online service? 6% of you said yes, 83% of you said no, and 11% of you said I already have. Today's daily poll relates to that story about Nordstrom's closing its stores across Canada by late June and shuttering their e-commerce business as of today. Are you surprised when a major retailer, a retail store, announces it's closing? Are you surprised when a major retail store announces it's closing? Yes or no? At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Alex Smythe, I don't know about you, but I'm rarely surprised when brick-and-mortar stores say, "Now nah, we're done. Uh, yeah, I, I guess it, it, it changes depending on the size and scope of the closures. If we're talking about Nordstrom specifically, it was like 14 stores across the country. That's really nothing. Like that... You know, yes, they're 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 shutting all their their operations in Canada. But when you think about what their footprint was of fourteen stores across the country, that is like so insignificant a number. It, it's hard to be sur- like overwhelmed or surprised or shocked or or what have you. I I think we're in such an era where online shopping reigns supreme, and and people's strategies and philosophies on how they shop, especially for things like clothing and retail has really like diverted from what it used to be. Uh, I know a few people who, when they don't even technically go into stores to shop anymore, they'll just buy like something online that they, they like. They don't, if they're not sure about the size, they'll get like two or three sizes and then they'll just return the other ones. To me, that just seems bizarre to, to do it that way, but that's the approach they take in the era of online shopping supremacy, where it's just like, okay, you know, I, I like this coat. Is it the extra large? Is it the Diablo XL? Is it the large that fits me best? I'm going to buy all three, and then I'll return the other two, and, and there will be no consequences for it. I'll get the size that works best for me, but it's just an extra step of, oh, I have to return these other ones. So I don't think there's really any major shock to me what what becomes more shocking is when those announcements come that stores come back like like the zellers like the kmarts things like that where it's just like wait why yeah you know this, <laughs> this is not the market for starting merge new- into that into that into that stunning emerging retail space yeah exactly so it's like that's the one that surprises me more not so much the ones that are closing i i think we kind of are in agreement with that it's like that's just the landscape we live in now but it's like when the big ones are coming out and they're coming out with like a big presence and trying to really reconnect into this marketplace that's what surprises me more alex anyone who knows me would know that uh, being stylistic is not necessarily in my forte i dress like garbage uh, t-shirts and hoodies are pretty much my general operation uh, when i'm not on air uh, so i don't spend a lot of time inside of nordstrom's but i'm led to believe i'm led to believe by people in the know that nordstrom's is like like high end, but not necessarily super high end, right? It's sort of in yeah. that that like above H and M, but below Holt Renfrew, b- below sort mm-hmm. of major designers. I always wonder about the nature of a retail store because I don't I, like if something like say Holt Renfrew or Tiffany's would say no, 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 we're shuttering our operations. Then I'd be a little bit stunned because they're offering something that's a little bit different. They're offering yeah. a certain prestige in the experience. But I think when you start talking about that slightly above market, slightly markup retail space, those are the ones that I think are really going to struggle because of a brand identity. And it's not like people were just clamoring to get into a Nordstrom's when it opened, right? It's not a specialty shop. It really is a broad-based fashion retailer. Like, for example, you walk by these sneaker shops in downtown Toronto, and there's lineups out the door when a new new set of Jordans drops. It's very specified. It's very specific. I, I just don't know if 
if you can be a general, slightly above average fashion retailer anymore. You either need to be the tippity, tippity, tippity top, or you need to be Walmart. It's like you, you can't be yeah. in the middle. Well, and, and also the thing, too, with Nordstrom, like, they were selling a lot of other brands there. So, like, it wasn't like they, their big share was a in-house brand yeah, necessarily. Yeah. It, it was selling other products from other uh, brands and stores and stuff like that. So, it's like that you lose the value in, in regards to that because your identity is tied to other stores, other brands. But I also agree with you, Dave, because like we, we've talked about it. I mean, even with uh, the ideas like with, with housing in uh, Karen Rebo's report where it's like, you know, you're, you're shrinking. Well, it's the cost of everything else is, is going up. Well, who are the ones who are most likely to shop at a Nordstrom? Well, it was the middle class, the ones who had a bit more money, who were doing well pre-pandemic, who had a bit more, you know, um, uh, spending money available to them. Well, now that everything has gone up, the inflation, the cost of living, all those things, well, there's less money to spend on on clothes and things like that. The the upper middle class, the, the upper class, they're still going to go shop at those designer name brand stores. Like, they're unaffected, really, from this. It's that middle class where it's like, oh, I need to start changing how I'm shopping, where I'm spending my money because I need to be more uh, money conscious. So I'm not going to go shop at Nordstrom anymore, as you mentioned. It's like, I'll, I'll go to an H&M or, or something like that. They're a bit more affordable, but I can still kind of get the items that I want and need just at a better price point. Not to uh, reveal too much here, but a few of my actor friends have uh, going through a bit of a slowdown in business here. So I've been doing some catering jobs on the side. And one of them was at a Holt Renfrew. So apparently in December, when you were doing some Christmas shopping, they were offering caviar and martinis mm. and champagne uh, in the shopping experience. And this is why I know I don't belong in stores like that. But that's what I'm talking about. When you really think yeah. about that retail experience now, if you want to get people into the store, if you're going to be even trying to offer any kind of above end or, or higher end experience, you really have to go for that high end experience. There needs to be the caviar and the champers and the martinis. Well, maybe that that's what uh, did Nordstrom in. They didn't have enough caviar yeah, and champagne more, more on, caviar. on tap for yeah. them. Yeah, needs more caviar. That's obviously the retail solution. That's how we're going to unlock yeah. this whole thing. Alex, thank you for this. Thank you. Alex Smythe will be back in just a moment to offer up the National Weather Report. In the meantime, you should open up your phone or open up your computer and head over to Twitter or Facebook at Accessible Media on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Vote on the poll and uh, let us know about a retailer that you might actually be devastated by if it did go away. Let's go back to Alex. He has the National Weather Updates. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting off in St. John's, Newfoundland today, it's a mix of sun and clouds. The high is minus 5 and feeling slightly cool at minus 14 with the wind chill. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, there's heavy and blowing snow this morning, but then clearing up in the afternoon. There's up to 5 centimeters of snow expected. There's also wind gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour. The high is zero, but with that wind chill, it makes it feel like minus 12. To Montreal, Quebec, it's sunny today. The high is minus 2 and the wind chill minus 15. But there is a weather statement in effect with heavy snow starting after midnight. It's all part of the snow system we're going to continue to see as we move westward. In Ottawa, Ontario today, it's sunny as well during the day. The high is 0. The wind chill is minus 19. But now we get into that special weather statement again for a snowstorm starting for Ottawa right before midnight around that time. As we move to Toronto, it's mainly cloudy with the snow expected to start late afternoon and into early evening. There's also going to be wind gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour today. The high is one degree, with the wind chill is minus eight, and the winter storm watch is in effect. The Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy today with a chance of snow in the morning. The high is one degree, but it's feeling like minus 13. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, we're starting to see a bit more of the sunshine. So it's mainly sunny today. There's wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is minus one, but feeling like minus 20. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it is sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds later on in the day. The high is zero degrees, but feeling like minus 17. In Calgary, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds today. The high is also zero, but with that wind chill, it's more like minus 12. 
Edmonton, Alberta. They're experiencing some sunny conditions as well, and it's becoming a mix of sun and clouds later with the possibility of snow in the afternoon. The high is three degrees, but again with that wind chill, makes it feel like minus 12. Up in Yellowknife Northwest Territories, it's slight snow throughout the day today. The high is minus 19, but with that wind chill, makes it feel like minus 29. To Vancouver, BC, where it's mainly cloudy with possible rain or wet snow expected in the morning, and the high is five degrees. And finally, to Victoria, BC, where it's cloudy with rain expected in the morning, and the high is six degrees today. And that's our AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up after the break, it's a fresh edition of the news panel. Joita Gupta and Megan Gilmore will be part of this crew. We dive into the federal government's decision to ban TikTok on all federally issued mobile devices. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday, so you know that means it's time for the weekly news panel. A special edition of the news panel today as Megan Gilmore is pinch hitting for Michelle McQuig. Of course, Joita Gupta is here. And you know what that means? It's the three generations of hosts of the Pulse on AMI audio getting together for a special news panel. So first, hello to Megan Gilmore. Hello, Dave. Thank you for that warm introduction. <laughs> well, happy to have you aboard. And Joita, hello to you once again. Hello. It's so good to be with Megan again. And you, of course. Oh, well, yeah. But uh, yeah, we, 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 I know what I am. I'm, I'm just average. I'm the, I'm, the, uh, I'm the H&M to the Nordstrom that is uh, Megan Gilmore. Uh, let's uh, jump into the first topic here, guys. The federal government is banning TikTok from its mobile devices. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau explains the rationale. We're making the decision that uh, for government employees, for government equipment, it is better uh, to not have them access TikTok uh, because of the concerns uh, that people have in terms of safety. Uh, this may be a first step. It may be the only step we need to take. But every step of the way, we're going to be making sure uh, we're keeping Canadians safe. Several provinces have followed suit during the week, including Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, Quebec, Saskatchewan, and yesterday Manitoba and the Yukon made a similar announcement, banning TikTok on their government-issued devices. I went on a big, long rant about this on Tuesday, talking about the way in which TikTok is being singled out seems a little bit disingenuous, even understanding that uh, we're talking about maybe government interference in a private corporation versus, say, uh, Twitter, which is run by a megalomaniac right now, or at least uh, a person exhibiting the traits of a megalomaniac, or Facebook, which has already uh, interfered in elections, uh, several <laughs> around the world. But Joita, as you consider the story, this particular story, how do you feel about TikTok being singled out from other social media apps? Well, I mean, if you were to talk to anyone at TikTok, they would argue that they are being singled out and that they, they perceive it as very unfair. But we know that Facebook, Twitter, Google, any sort of social media app has the ability to collect large amounts of personal data and that they make this readily available to their advertisers and uh, possibly to governments as well. And what, we, what you see with things like Facebook and Google is that because they're headquartered in the United States, the American government already has presumably access to that information, uh, whether that's um, a bone of contention for the end user, that's a separate conversation. But from a national security point of view, at least in the United States, I don't see them getting overly concerned about the fact that they can access, if they need to, uh, large amounts of personal information from Facebook and, and you know, the other social media websites. Where things get a little tricky with TikTok is that it's headquartered in China. China and the United States have not been on the best of terms, forgive the understatement here. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's a perception that this will be used, uh, that TikTok will be used as a way to commit 
for uh, espionage. And I think that's that the concern is really to do with national security. The concern is really to do with, I would even hazard a guess, uh, uh, the perception that those who are critical of the Chinese government may come under greater scrutiny uh, because of their use of TikTok. It might be a way to crack down on Chinese dissidents living abroad. So have they been singled out? Obviously, I think that the, the, the thing speaks for itself. But there are reasons why, when you consider the geopolitical context, that the singling out might be taking place. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I understand the rationale, but I'll also say they're kind of creating a boogeyman here. They're sort, of, they're sort of saying, well, your information is safe with these giant corporations that are perpetually experiencing cybersecurity hacks. But no, no, we can't have this one that is headquartered in China. I, I, I just think there's something disingenuous about mm -hmm. the conversation that is a broader issue that we'll jump into in a moment here. But Megan, I want to give you a chance to react to the way in which TikTok has been very much singled out this week. Sure. So I share a lot of the same overall thoughts uh, as Julita. Um, obviously, uh, we've been discussing the uh, reports of Chinese interference in elections in Canada. I know you've been discussing that on this segment as well in past weeks. If that story was not also going on, I, I don't think we would see this ban on TikTok. So mm. uh, part of me views this almost as a signal that the Canadian government is sending, whether or not it is simply symbolic. Like, yes, we're dealing with this. We banned TikTok off of our government-issued mobile devices. <laughs> see everybody? Or if they're saying, or if this is like a precursor to something more, I, I don't know, mm. but I do think that you cannot view those two stories in isolation from each other. Yeah, that's really well put and well phrased. And th there is something, as, as the week has moved on and more provinces have started making this decision as well, and of course it's going on south of the border as well, the Americans have implemented a similar policy, giving government institutions 30 days to get TikTok off their devices. I, I, you know, I, I see where there's perhaps a little bit of alignment going on here um, that, that speaks to them taking some reports seriously and credibly. But if you'll allow me to extend a thought that I previously had. Megan, wouldn't it make sense to be extremely restrictive about all apps that end up on a government device? Like, if it's truly a work phone or a work computer issued by the government, wouldn't it make sense to just be really clamping down, really funneling what can go up on there, maybe other than, like, government-issued email communications or, like, intraportal intraportal devices and apps like really not even allowing that outer connection to the internet on on again on a work device yeah, my gut reaction yes like yeah um there's so many things that could go wrong with your social media apps and things that individuals who happen to be employees of the government could post from the like just so many things that could happen. Um, the one um, wrinkle in my gut reaction to like just ban them all, everybody, be above reproach here, is the fact that the government also uses social media apps and platforms to promote itself, right? So there's, and those posts, that content is created by government employees. So it does raise the question, the fact that social media is not just a personal use thing. Mm. It's also part of people's mm -hmm. professional jobs, which for these individuals, their professional job is the public service. So the fact that it is murky, I think, just speaks to the murkiness of social media and its ubiquity in life. I, You know, I had that thought too, Megan, that so oftentimes government's communications now are occurring on social media, probably for the right reasons. It's, it's a way to reach people. It's the new way of connecting with people. I, I get that. But but again, I'm, I, I'm just still struggling and scratching at this idea. If you're so, so concerned about privacy mm -hmm. and concern about the terms of service and concerned about malfeasance that may occur by people getting access to these apps either via hacking or whatever means whatever means they may get access to it Joita, doesn't it just make a, a little bit of sense to say we're just going to be entirely and completely restrictive on any kind of work device like maybe we, I can even I can even split some hairs here and say any work device that contains any kind of important communication or government mm -hmm. data right that maybe you almost start having social media burner phones for for yeah. for, for, for like for media relations people. 
Yeah, I mean, you very famously, Obama was prevented from using a BlackBerry because of national security concerns. And so I take your point. I, I think uh, there might have to be a conversation about the use of personal social media on government issued devices. Uh, certainly, we know some people have gotten into trouble for that in the past. Uh, but I think the larger conversation really may, and maybe the more pertinent one uh, might be about the state of privacy legislation. We know that social media apps are here to stay. I think it's very unlikely that we're going to jump in a time machine and collectively go back to 2005. Uh, we're we're looking at 20 years in almost uh, a world that is deeply connected and, and linked. And Megan made the very astute observation that uh, social media companies are uh, provide platforms via which governments reach out to constituents and voters and the general population. So I don't see them going back on that either. So I think really what we need to hammer home is the privacy legislation piece around here. So what information are these social media companies collecting? Who are they disseminating it to? Under what circumstances and in what fashion? Mm. And of course, to really really tighten up security in, in terms of the hacks and breaches that you've talked about, where large amounts of personal data has been compromised or hacked. And so that's really the conversation we need to be having, because I think while it's always interesting to dive into the ban or no ban question, it's also a murky question to which I don't think you'll ever get someone uh, who gives us any serious consideration uh, able to come down firmly one on one side or the other of the debate. It's an interesting conversation to have, but I think the more pertinent and the more relevant conversation certainly has to do with uh, the state of privacy legislation. And again, the American context is very different from the Canadian context. You can see American uh, lawmakers getting hassled because of TikTok, but they're not really getting as hassled about Facebook or any of the other social media giants headquartered because from a national security point of view, they don't care. Yeah. They want to have access to that information and they know they can subpoena these social media companies and get access to that information. When we're talking about Canada, though, with companies headquartered in China, with companies headquartered in America, you suddenly start to have very different conversations about uh about the use of social media on government devices and the dissemination or the collection of private confidential information in the Canadian context, because you know the American government could have access to confidential information. So I think I'm not going to quibble with the singling out of TikTok. Uh, I'm sure others w will, uh, but I'm not going to. Uh, not least because I, I'm not on TikTok, so I really couldn't care less. But um, I think. Um, it does open up a broader conversation in Canada about the use of all social media device uh, uh, platforms on government issued devices, knowing that our situation is very different from the American context. Megan, Joita and I are on a similar page here, where perhaps the notion of talking about a ban is not actually the most important in the way that we're discussing social media, even though we can acknowledge that government privacy matters. And as Joita pointed out, personal privacy really matters here as well. But there is mounting evidence about the impact of social media on the mental health of not just young people. That's been a particular area of focus in the last two or three years, but the mental health of everyone. Social media is is by evidence uh, crumbling social connection. Like it's making us more connected, but making us less connected to other people in reality. So as we're having this conversation, I'd argue that some of the mental health issues being associated with social media would be one of the biggest concerns that should be talked about more. I would love it if our elected officials were actually grappling with that. I would also love our elected officials as they're talking about things like foreign interference. I would love for more analysis to be to be happening around these platforms and the negative impacts impacts having on political discourse, democracy domestically and abroad. But as you start thinking about this, I mean, I don't want to say power rankings, but as you start thinking about some of these various issues, is, is the issue of simply talking about privacy, like the only conversation that should be occurring here? No, and, and like, I totally agree with you. I was thinking that as the two of you were talking, I wanted to butt in and be like, okay, like also mental health, also the rise in eating disorder disorders mm. of, around young women. Um, the fact that I, part of my other job as a journalist, talk to individuals who are applying for medical assistance and dying, and I know that because they posted it on Twitter. Like, that's the type of conversation that is happening on some social media accounts, okay? Right up there with like, hey, so-and-so is in the hospital and we'd like to raise money 
for them and their family to cover medical expenses, which is great. Uh, we have a whole lot of other things uh, happening as well. Uh, so I think all these conversations need to be happening concurrently. Uh, there are questions about which uh, public sphere is best to address them. Um, so who is the government listening to in terms of its experts around things like mental health um, for children and for seniors, uh, especially in a context of a pandemic where people have been significantly isolated already in their actual um, non online lives, right? There's already that isolation there. You combine that with uh, dynamics of social media. That's a pretty potent uh, mix there. Uh, so I think that needs to be addressed. Um, but I do I do take Juita's point. Um, if the government only does bans and doesn't actually seriously consider the legislative frameworks that are giving rise to these concerns, you really just kind of put a Band-Aid yeah. on a much larger problem. Th that's it. It feels like this whole week there was a microscope rather than a macroscope. That, that there should have mm -hmm. been a broader conversation happening, but it was easy just to have a win of saying, look how tough we are. We're banning TikTok and we're ready to grapple with social media at its finest. And here, have some of our data. Let us post that on our government Facebook account right. that we've yeah. banned TikTok. And let me make an Instagram reel about it too. All right, that's it for this conversation. Coming up next, we consider a controversial political meeting between three federal conservative MPs and a far-right German politician. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Megan Gilmore and Joita Gupta. Let's address our next topic. Conservative MPs are remaining tight-lipped about whether they regret meeting with a far-right German politician. Stephanie Taylor lays out the story. Ontario MPs Leslie Lewis, Dean Allison and Colin Carey were photographed meeting with Christine Anderson at an event last week organized by supporters of last winter's Freedom Convoy. Anderson is a member of the European Parliament representing a party which has been accused of downplaying Nazi crimes, opposing immigration and pushing anti-Muslim ideology. After their meeting, Polyev says his three MPs were unaware of her views and regret meeting with her. Carey expressed his regret on social media. But when asked directly if Allison and Lewis also regret attending as Polyev says they do, neither of their offices have responded. Stephanie Taylor, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Juita, this story jumped out to you. What did you want to explore in this conversation? There's a number of things to explore. I think certainly uh, the lack of response from Leslie Lewis and uh, Allison is very interesting to see. Are they genuinely remorseful? Do they think they put their foot in it? Uh, or are they just towing the party line? What does it mean? when conservative MPs start to rub shoulders with people like Christine Anderson uh, from the Alternative for Germany party. Is that really the kind of branding and the public perception of the conservative party they want out there in the lead up to the election? Does this help or hinder? And really, ultimately, what is the it's such a it's a it's a tricky one because you don't want to prevent people from meeting um, foreign diplomats or politicians who might have controversial points of views or uh, opinions that might differ from from our own but where do you actually draw the line uh when does when does taking such a meeting or having this uh, uh having interactions with a politician with extremist points of view like become really unpalatable and it's very tricky to draw that line because you don't want to just again like in our previous conversation just outright ban the you know meeting somebody with a, a controversial point of view i don't think is necessarily the the solution there so there's a certain uh, nuanced conversation that can be had about uh when and how politicians meet with their counterparts in foreign governments and what role their staff have to play in trying to vet uh, those meetings and what the implications are, not just for the Conservative Party, but for the state of public discourse in Canada. Megan, Joita's got a lot to unpack there, but one of the really fascinating questions is that politicians meet with all kinds of people for official and unofficial reasons. And is it possible or how is it possible to distinguish perhaps some lines about meeting foreign counterparts on official business rather than more casual encounters? Is it even conceivable to draw that line, especially for a party that is in opposition sure i don't personally think it 
really is ever conceivable to draw that line, especially if you are a member of public office, uh, that kind of comes with the territory. And I think you should be aware of that and willing to know that everything that you do will be scrutinized, particularly if photographs surface of it, right? Uh, so uh, do we know exactly who took those photos, that type of thing? I would hope that the same amount of public scrutiny is applied to all politicians, regardless of their party affiliation. And I, th I think it is incredibly, incredibly difficult to draw that line. And I think Particularly because they are meeting with another politician, right? This isn't yeah. um, this isn't like oh, I was meeting with a um, like the owner of a local flower shop that may not have anything to do with my party, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it it does depend exactly on who who they're meeting and why. But I do think if you're a member of public office, you just should expect that anything you do will be scrutinized and you should be able to explain your reasons for what you've done. I, I think it is possible to draw some lines here. So for example, there's a big G20 meeting going on right now and there's there's official elected politicians who are meeting with other individuals who may not share a common belief. For example, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, yesterday. No one would tell you that Blinken meeting with Lavrov was some kind of endorsement of Lavrov's mm -hmm. views. That is something you have to do in official business. And mm -hmm. I'll even go as far as to say perhaps expressing some understanding here for three politicians going to an event that is not a party event, it was not a political event, and perhaps they were not privy to the guest list. Now, where things start to get a little bit shaky is after they have the meeting and the photographs is taken, and they're not willing to justify their position. One is willing mm -hmm. to express some regret, and two are saying, I'm not going to say anything about this. One of the things that, although, um, uh, you know, you have to be careful with the company that you keep, when we're talking about authenticity in politicians, it's not always about whether your political views align with somebody else's political views. But if you're going to meet with someone, you should acknowledge it and own it, right? Like, period, point finale. Like, you can't just hide behind this idea of hoping something's going to go away. It's something that I've expressed about Alberta Premier Daniel Smith or even former British Prime Minister Liz Truss. For whatever flaws people perceive in them, they at least know who they are. Right, and they're willing to express who they are mm -hmm. in an era where authenticity matters in politics. So, so although I don't necessarily like the media relations side on the back end of this, I will express some understanding and empathy to somebody meeting with someone else at, at, at an unofficial, non-sort of party event. But Joita, that that line question is a really interesting one. It, it, it's yes. one of the it's one of the great bar questions of all time. You sit at a pub and you talk about how you how you draw the line. How do you contemplate that question? You can you can go through many pints of beer trying to figure out an answer to that one but I and think, i do um, and i do and, and i think but i think you know in inter I, i'm going to pick up on what megan was saying earlier because i do sort of see us agreeing more with one another on this uh on this particular issue i think when you're in public office you are subject to greater scrutiny and not just in terms of who you're meeting and which meetings you're taking but also in terms of your social media in fact i'll even go out on a bit of a limb and say how you spend your vacations i know we talked about that um particular story some some months ago about a person getting criticized about, the, the, about the, Finnish, the prime minister, the, the, the Finnish the, prime, uh, minister, the prime minister, dancing and drinking. Getting, yes, and people getting criticized. And I said at the time, and I'll I'll continue to say it that yes, she was on vacation, but she's subject to higher scrutiny. And I think you make a really interesting distinction between official diplomatic visits, uh, where you tend to have to rub shoulders with people that either you have divergent political views with, or people you just don't agree with you you can't help it in the context of a g20 meeting or a un summit who you're going to talk to in an official capacity but we have to remember this wasn't uh an event that was even sponsored by the opposition party this was christina anderson on a speaking tour across canada and it sounds like three conservative mps just decided um that they would attend this without at least in the case of one of them vetting the person and it is really worthwhile considering the AFD and how problematic their politics are. They were there uh, on the one hand, very critical of the Trudeau government's handling of the pandemic. They were there endorsing and supportive of the uh, Freedom Convoy, which which I think has been shown to have caused quite a, 
uh, a detrimental impact uh, across the country. And so they were in support of that. Uh, in Europe, they've been known to espouse extremist views. They've downplayed the Holocaust. Um, they've minimized the impact of Nazism. They have uh, espoused anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim sentiment. And I don't like to lean on the trope of quote-unquote Canadian values. I know that's a really problematic term. But if we can use it as a shorthand to say, I acknowledge that, you know, if you're a political leader and you meet with somebody in an official or an unofficial capacity, you open yourself up to some controversy or criticism. Even Megan's example about the flower shop can actually be opened up to controversy. You might have the ice cream owner, the, the person who owns the ice cream shop next door saying, you know, that's really unfair. You met with the florist, but you haven't, you've been putting me off for six months. Even that can get controversial. So any politician might be subject to a certain amount of controversy if they take a meeting that somebody somewhere disagrees with having, with them having taken. But the issue at hand really is where do we draw the line? And I think we draw the line at meeting people whose points of views become uh, start to get into hate speech, start to get into extremist values, uh, because I think that is a um, that is if I had to draw a line, that would be where I would try to draw the line. Well, then federal politicians better not be meeting with anybody from the Coalition Avenir Quebec at this point, right? The Quebec government passing their laws, Bill 96 and Bill 21, like that would fall into that anti-immigrant sentiment. But Joita, I think you're right to identify when you're talking about the way in which the AFN, this this party in Germany, uh, tends to deny the Holocaust. That's when yeah. you start getting into the territory of saying, okay, this isn't just a political tendency or a political leaning. This is something that, that's big that perhaps is unsavory that any Canadian political party doesn't want to be getting getting in line with but I mean it, Megan like it, it's complicated to sort of ask a question on on the back end of that but but what do you make of politicians courting I, I don't want to use the word fringe groups because I think that's unfair right. but what do you make of politicians seeing the need to mobilize votes wherever they can find them because that's what that's what this is, right? This this is yeah, this is conservative is. politicians yeah. saying there's a freedom convoy event. We want to go. We want mm -hmm. these voters not to vote for Maxime Bernier in the next election. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I have many different thoughts related to this. Um, uh, when I was a regular member of, of this news panel, uh, listeners may remember that at any time the Conservative Party of Canada came up, I would say that I think being the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada must be the worst job in Canadian politics <laughs> because of the nature of that party. It is formed out of a coalition. It is a very wide, a very wide range of people fall in that party, and it's it's a big fundamental existential question that the Conservative Party has. Are we big tents or are we specific? And then you get other conservative-minded parties like uh, Mr. Bernier's who are formed out of this. And then it, there is a very strategic question of if if you fall under, under, the, under the conservative part of the political spectrum in this country, who do you vote for and why? And it, it's this fascinating question now when, when we come to telling up election results and all that stuff. So... It is, personally, I would say probably inevitable, given the state of conservative politics in Canada at this moment, right? People's voters' loyalties are, are divided. They have many people who are going to try to court them, to try to win them over to their side. Um, it's an opposition party for a minority government, right? So even with uh, this agreement with the NDP, it's a minority government, uh, so you always have this potential of an election and i don't think you can ever keep that out of the back of your mind if you're if you're a politician i think um i think it must be very hard for them to like to not try to court folks and i know i like i personally don't know any politicians at this moment i i know a lot of public servants because i live in ottawa <laughs> but i don't but like 90 percent of my friends uh, i i know justices in very uh, prominent positions, but I, but I don't know any any politicians. And I know for me, I would probably find it awkward even if they were my friend and we're having a friendly conversation about like the game or whatever. I'd be like, wait, are you? Especially if they like represent my writing, right? I'd be like, wait a minute, you're just trying to get me both of you. What's what's going on here? Um, one of the <laughs> deeply about... deeply cynical Megan Gilmore. Yes, deeply cynical <laughs> Megan Gilmore. One of the things I just find really interesting about the story is I get it. You went to this event. We can have questions about that. But there were there was photographic evidence 
So I'm just like, did, like, do you not have the power to say, actually, I don't want to have my photo taken with this person. I'm a politician. I know this is going to get up there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That maybe you can attend the event, do a little glad handing around the room, but make sure you're never in the same sphere as the yeah. speaker. You can you can do your best to to, to avoid that. Um, although speaking as someone who emcees a lot of events, it, it can sometimes be hard to avoid the photo op. You get you get dragged into these things. Uh, Joita, I'm going to give you last word on this, but I've got to hold you to about a minute so we don't run way 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 over time. But what do you make of that that notion of politicians chasing votes with maybe being associated to movements that are at least I'm going to say controversial, and and, uh, and 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 Freedom Convoy supporters can uh, send me an email feedback at ami.ca. <laughs> um, well, I think if you look at Pierre Polyev's response here, they're definitely trying to save face, saying these were a couple of MPs who acted alone. They didn't vet the person they were going to meet. They had no idea who they were actually going to meet. Definitely trying to backtrack here because. As Megan pointed out very astutely, the Conservative Party tries to bring a lot of people with very divergent uh, points of views under one umbrella. And really, yes, they might be able to court some votes with the fringes and people with extreme views about vaccine mandates and people who are supportive of the convoy on the one hand, but they then are sliding down this perilous slope where they tend, they might end up losing a large number of voters or by alienating the, the 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 conservative center so it's a tough balancing act uh for the leader of the conservative party and certainly it sounds like at least in this instance that they cracked down very hard on these mps and said sorry you've got to disassociate yourself you've got to dis distance yourself from christine anderson and the aft and try to create some distance because of the political repercussions so it's not just about courting votes uh, it's it's a little more nuanced than that. Where are you trying to get these votes from, and what are you losing out in the process? Yeah, it, it it's strange, right? Because you'd say a vote is a vote is a vote, but every when every time you tiptoe in one direction, where you, what are you losing in the other direction? It, it, mm -hmm. It's a very complicated balancing act, as both you and Megan pointed out. Okay, let's put a wrap on this topic and then put a wrap on the panel because coming up next the Rideau Canal Skateway is not going to open this winter because of a very warm winter so we'll consider if that's a reflection of climate change and the way we engage in winter activities and activities all year round this is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv It's the Now News panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Megan Gilmore and Joita Gupta. We've got one more topic to discuss. The National Capital Commission announced last week that the Rideau Canal Skateway in Ottawa will not open this year. The ice on the canal must be 30 centimeters thick to approve the opening of the skateway, and that means 10 to 14 straight days of temperatures below minus 10, which never happened this winter. Megan, you're a relatively new Ottawan. What does this story have you thinking about in relation to climate change? First, it just makes me very sad because the canal is literally across the street from me <laughs> and I cannot go on it. And it makes me very, Aww. very sad. I'm sorry, Megan. Uh, I know. It's just, it's sad, right, Jake? It is sad. It is sad. Like the like the Rideau Canal for people who've never lived in Ottawa, it's it's an institution in and of itself. Especially during yeah. the winter when people skate to work, it's one of the coolest yes. things you'll ever see. It's it's amazing. It's incredible. It's what all your friends from out of town ask about. Like there's a lot of international tourism and business associated with the canal. We love the canal. We love the canal. Um, what it does get me thinking about in terms of climate change is I wonder if it is an event like this where it's something like day like you mentioned something that is such a venerated institution for a city for a region when it is impacted if it helps people understand climate changes better because uh, often i find that when we discuss uh, science and we discuss th things about climate it can be very almost um like abstract so it's hard for people to understand or very um immediately apocalyptic and dystopian so like the world is going to end tomorrow because of like 
um, like changing ocean levels, and that can either terrify people or turn them off. Mm. And I wonder if it's something like this that can help people understand, okay, these are the ways in which our natural environment is changing. How does that influence the way that we go about our everyday lives? There are a lot of serious ways to contemplate climate change that, that make it the existential crisis that it is. You know, for example, Pakistan, a third of the country being underwater for months last year. Uh, on the flip side, the American Southwest possibly running into an issue where they're not going to be able to generate hydroelectricity within the next two years because of drought conditions in the desert. Surprise, surprise, drought conditions in the desert. Um, but Joita, when you put a story like this in front of people that is maybe less about the existential crisis but more about the disruption of fun, how do you think mm -hmm. that impacts the general public's understanding of climate change? Yeah, I think... Um... I always think back to a conversation I had with Lawrence Gunther, who hosts a show here on AMI. Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, Sundays, 3 yeah. p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. <laughs> and he said something really worthwhile, which is uh, just to pick up on what Megan was saying, that these conversations can be very terrifying and very abstract. But you've also got to get people to care about the environment and got to love the environment. And I think the fact that many people have fond memories of skating to work or to school on the Rideau Canal is a way to gender, engender not just a concern about the, the climate and to make it real by bringing it to the, a person's backyard, literally in some cases, but hopefully to also engender some empathy for people in Pakistan with a third of the country being underwater, right? So sometimes when we think about climate change, we hopefully need to start making those connections between what's happening here with what's happening over there, because it's not just one country acting alone that's going to solve the crime the climate crisis, but in trying to recognize that it needs everybody working together. Sometimes it's that very small thing in the scheme of things happening in your backyard, not being able to skate, which can hopefully be an educational opportunity to open up a bigger conversation about the climate and what people can actually do in their day-to-day -day lives to try and impact uh, or try and influence um, the direction of climate change in, in uh, you know, globally. So that is mm. a way to try and deal with some of the, um, there was a, a prof I talked to a couple of years back um, Ashley Consuelo from the um, from Memorial University, uh, who coined the term eco grief, which is just a way of thinking about the grief um, associated with the loss of environment and the loss of ways of life. And she was talking mostly about indigenous communities. But if you think about someone who's lived in Ottawa, whether you're a recent arrival or someone who grew up there, uh, this is the kind of issue that engenders a degree of grief. But then do you turn that grief into activism, that's the other big question. Yeah, turning the focus back to Ottawa, again, the canal story really resonated. It, it, it made news in a big way, but what also made news in Ottawa twice in the last five years were two, uh, quote, once-in-a-century floods, right? That happened, there were two in three years. It was, like, stunning that the Ottawa River uh, was just absolutely bursting. Uh, so was the St. Lawrence in, in that neck of the woods as well. So, Megan, when, when you think about sort of that contrast between the fun activities that are going away, as well as some of the greater existential dread, what are some of the coping, coping mechanisms that you think are healthy that you can digest this story, you can think about this story, you can maybe even take action on the story, but not just find yourself curling up into the fetal position, uh, worrying about the world crumbling around you? Right, and thank you for bringing up the floods, because that is an ongoing issue in this region mm -hmm. uh, of the country. There's a lot of really interesting stories to dig in there even about things like home insurance and how people purchase homes and flood zones. Anyways, um, I think one of the ways that you can cope is actually to spend time in nature, right? Uh, to see that, yes, for all the floods and the droughts and the skate skateways that don't freeze, there's still a lot of beauty um, and there's still a lot of things that you can enjoy again to like um, when somebody cares about something because they love it, it, it comes across in a very different way, uh, in a better way. I also think some humility is required um, to know like what you can and cannot do, right? Um, and and, and to, to work with that, like to challenge yeah. yourself, but to also know that you as one individual in your sphere of influence, while your sphere of influence is important, it is not ultimate it's not everything like there are some things that you're not going to be able to do but there are a lot of things that you can do so mm -hmm. um 
learning how to balance those two things. Uh, resiliency is a bit of a dirty word these days because people use it so disingenuously, but perspective for resiliency matters. Certainly a lot of what we're experiencing in the changing climate is as a result of man-made activity. I'm not going to have that debate. That is just a reality. The Industrial Revolution and global warming have basically gone hand in hand with one another. However, it is worth noting historically, the climate does adapt. What I do is perpetually uh, advocate for better resiliency, whether that's mm -hmm. better civil, whether that's better civil engineering, civic planning, whether that's better emergency plans to evacuate people in times of trouble, but to also consider what opportunities may exist elsewhere to ensure that we are giving ourselves, like even certainly as Canada, as an individual country, but even as a world, understanding what kind of migratory patterns are going to exist as they have for thousands of years in human existence that humans have migrated and moved based on change in environmental conditions and just understanding that's a possibility but also understanding that it's not just something that you need to think about in the context of dread but in the context of planning and consideration because like planning for something planning for a poor scenario is not necessarily like living in fear of a terrible scenario. It's making sure you're prepared for a bad scenario. So that's kind of where I land on that. Joita, what about you as you begin to grapple with that balancing act between digesting and understanding the significance of climate change, but also not getting caught in that fetal position? Yeah, and I think that's one of the wonderful ways in which people with disabilities can become problem solvers when it comes to dealing with the climate. Uh, there's a Montreal-based researcher, Sebastian Jodwan, who oh, he's awesome. is a really awesome and has talked a lot about how people with disabilities, A, are natural problem solvers in their own lives, but also bring a lot to bear on the climate conversation. So we often have conversations about not just looking at the downside of living with a disability, but looking at the positives. And I think when you look at uh, needing to adapt, needing to mitigate the impact of climate change, whether it's on how we build our homes, how we travel, how we evacuate during an emergency, it's actually a very, like as, as, a, as a person with a disability, I actually feel a lot less disheartened because I think people with disabilities bring to bear to this particular conversation a great deal of resiliency uh, as a result of having to navigate an ableist world. Mm. Um, and it's those skills that will stand not just people with disabilities, but everybody in good stead as we navigate the changing climate and honestly, go plant a tree. Oh, yeah, go plant the tree. Yes. I like that's a great message to wrap us up on. But let's end on a little bit of fun here, guys. Uh, Joita, what's your favorite winter activity? Staying home and staying warm. Staying home and staying warm. I felt <laughs> like I felt like I knew that one. Megan, what's 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 your, what's your favorite winter activity? Well, I do enjoy walking on the canal when it is there. But um, I went snowshoeing last month in Gatineau Park, um, and it was great. I uh, worry with my bad ankles and bad knees that if I tried to downhill ski again that my entire mm. lower body would explode but I'll tell you what après ski in a hot tub with a nice cocktail <laughs> that sounds good to me that's a good winter activity okay as we say goodbye here Joita you wanted to offer a quick reflection on the Nordstrom closing of course at Accessible Media on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc is where you can vote on the poll today are you surprised when a major retailer announces it's closing Joita you've got a strategy here with Nordstrom's I'm not surprised that they're closing. I'm a bit sad they're going, but I have mixed feelings. I'm sad to see them go, but I'm happy that there's a liquidation sale happening and I am it. I think I'm going to take full advantage of it, and I think others should as well, especially if you're in the department for home furnishings and stuff. You can get a lot of steep discounts. Look at this, Joita, fashion consultant. <laughs> and Megan, you are Mercenary. now... <laughs> Megan, you are now a full-blown Ottawan. You want to give the Carlton Ravens basketball teams, both men's and women's, a little love going into the weekend. I do. Um, full disclosure, I didn't know it was finals weekend until this morning. Thank you, CBC Ottawa. Uh, <laughs> but the women are in Kingston, and uh, the men are facing uh, the GGs. So you, Ottawa, uh, tomorrow night at Carleton. I will hopefully be there. Uh, go Ravens, go. Look and at this. I, unfortunately, I, don't, I was going to try to see, see if I could attend with some of my friends who go to U Ottawa, but I think they're otherwise engaged. So. <laughs> well, look at that. I, I, always, I, I always am so delighted when, when we get glimpses of Megan Gilmore, sports fan, baseball fan, and now college basketball fan. <laughs> uh, Megan, thank you for this. Thank you for pinch hitting for Michelle today. No problem. Thanks for having me on the show. And Joita, thank you as well. Yeah, thank you. See you next week. Megan Gilmore is an accessibility reporter on Now with Dave Brown and the host of of Connecting Disability Podcast. Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, it's the regional news update, and Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.